Colossians 3, verses 14 through 17 says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to, gratitude, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, this is a fairly brief uh, set of scriptures, uh, but, but this is one of those paragraphs that create quite a challenge if you're tasked with talking about them. Because the truth is, there's way too much here than we have time to talk about even in two weeks, which is why we got ourselves in the situation last week. I realized even, even what I've distilled here is too much for one Sunday morning. And so I would encourage you beyond this to steep yourself in these words. They're so powerful, but but kind of where I wanted to go with it is that we get a glimpse into what it looked like to be part of the lifestyle of the early church. And when I said that, there are certainly principles that translate over to the kind of organizational structures that we have, but we always have to remember our our, our contemporary organizational structures are all extra-biblical. That doesn't mean that they are non-biblical, and it certainly doesn't mean that they are anti-biblical. But these structures are not structured, the the, the scriptures are not speaking to this legal, organized, corporate structure that we have now. There are no popes in the New Testament, for example. There are no senior pastors and associate pastors and executive pastors and pastors of media. These things don't exist in that structure. So really, when we go to living these things, we want to look at principles for how we organize ourselves corporately, but these really are realities that are practiced in smaller groups of people, because the early church would have met in homes or in catacombs, and and they would have shared leadership. They would have shared the responsibility for the service together, not simply, they didn't have paid professionals that they then passively observed do the work of ministry, and that has been a great deception in the Western church. I hope in my generation, we work beyond that. Not that I'm against professional clergy as a living, by the way. Uh, I'm glad that I have a way of providing for my family. However, clergy in a church, their job is not to do the ministry, but to equip others to do the ministry. And we've moved a long way away from that to where we tend to have a passive laity watching the paid people do the thing. This is wrong. This is not what Jesus intended. So we're constantly trying to learn how to use our structures in such a way that we are empowering the greatest number of people to do the work of ministry. This is not a room full of the minister and the congregation. This is a room full of the ministers of Christ Community Church this morning. And so our goal is so that we're equipped to do that ministry uh, faithfully. And so, so that's what it's speaking to when we look at these structures. But even more specifically, when I go to my story, I believe that these principles that we see modeled in the early church, these are principles that I can also incorporate as uh, habits or disciplines or practices in my own life. I'm really enjoying the word practice lately. Because if you've been a Christian for 40 years, you know that in any given season, you're just practicing this stuff. You're practicing and hopefully you're getting better at it from one season to the next. So I really like the idea of adopting practices that allow me to position myself 
to, to, in, in the greatest way possible to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's plan of conforming me to the image of Christ. And I want to learn how to pursue those practices that are conducive to my being as faithful to Jesus as I possibly can. And while I do that, I recognize that means that it's possible to have practices that actually create a hindrance to my faithfulness to Jesus. And I want to be aware of those as well so I can be delivered from those practices that are becoming a hindrance. And the four that we identified right here in this paragraph were simply the word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. The word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. And we spent the whole time last week talking about what the word of Christ might mean, which I would encourage you, if you missed that, to maybe go back and familiarize yourself with that. But what we ended with was that the word of Christ is both the message about Christ, but it's also the message of Christ as well. And that it is important for contemporary churches to make sure that we maintain faithfulness and passion for both of those realities. Because if not, what we get in our hands is a cultural phenomenon where there are cultural Christians that believe all the right things about Christ, but they don't understand that this faith is about being called to obedience to Christ to actually follow the way of Jesus. And in some circles, it has become primarily a belief system about Jesus that doesn't produce disciples. That just produces people that know things in their head. And if you've been around it long, it also means that maybe you disagree with it, but as long as you don't say it and say you believe these things, and that's what Jesus came to establish. It is not. Jesus' call is a movement. It's a movement of following Jesus. And to be a Christian means I'm on the lifelong pursuit of learning how to grow in my faithfulness to Jesus and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in bringing me into conformity to Christ. That's what this is about. It's not primarily about afterlife destinations. It's not about getting all your theological ducks in a row. It is about following Jesus. And so we want to see how we can align ourselves with the principles of the scripture to most faithfully do that. And so it is not just the message about Jesus, but it's also the message of Jesus. And so we, 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 we ended on looking at 2 Corinthians 5.19, which, in which that word, the logos, where, where, where Paul uses it in, in Colossians, he says the, the, the logos of Christ needs to dwell richly among you. Well, here's another place where the logos of Christ is mentioned. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, and we ended here, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has committed the message of reconciliation to us, meaning the church. In this particular instance, yeah, we're going to finish the sermon today, so I've got just a few seconds to do this, but you have to remember this... (laughs) This group of Christians that Paul is writing to were the most embarrassing group in the first century. Like, this is the group he's saying to them, you've been entrusted with this grand message of reconciliation. Now, if you take time to read the rest of these letters, it is downright embarrassing what this church was doing and allowing the craziness that was taking place. And yet, here's the thing. Even though they were passionate and their passion was expressing itself in the flesh and they were, Paul had to deal with some pretty gross um, uh, infractions of morality that were taking place and, and, and being allowed within this church, even though that's the case. And even though they were known for having um, uh, valuing experiences that were mystical or more charismatic in nature. And so Paul is writing it to them to help them create some order. 
But he does not belittle the truthfulness of the work of the spirit that is among them. He doesn't take away from that. He doesn't, he doesn't hint that their immoral and immature outworkings in any way hindered the reality that the gospel was at work and the spirit was at work among this group of Christians gone wild. And so, so this is the group of people that he writes this to and he has the audacity. I mean, look, if anybody ought to be afraid of the grace message, you don't want to say that to the Corinthians. The last thing you want to do is to make them feel like they're getting away with all their crazy behavior, right? But yet what Paul says is this is the group to which he reminds them. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. And he is now entrusted to us, meaning me and you, this message of reconciliation. Now think about how miraculous that is. Paul says, in, God, in Christ, God reconciled the world to himself, that God did not count the world's trespasses against them, and that God has dignified the body of Christ with being the stewards of the news of the reconciliation that God has accomplished in Christ. That is the word of Christ. That's the logos of, logos of Christ that's supposed to dwell richly among us. That's the logos of Christ that is supposed to make his peace, the final arbitrator of how we do life in community. In fact, that word, let the peace of Christ rule among you, that has the idea of being an umpire, saying, yes, this is right, this is wrong. And it's not just, this is not a message of personal peace. Oh, if you're in turmoil and you want to find personal peace, then come to Christ. That, that's a true statement, but that's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying as a community, ultimately the peace of Christ is what is supposed to rule your community which is unfortunate. I would rather it be being right because then I could just stick to being right, emphasize that calling to be right. And even if it caused non-peace, I could feel justified because at least I was right. Unfortunately for me, that is not what Paul says and says, no, if you're right, but peace isn't ruling your community, you've got something wrong and you need to repent because what rules the community is the presence and responsiveness to the peace of Christ. And he says that happens if you allow the message of Christ to dwell among you. And then he's going to say these three words that say practically, here is how you, ex you enter into the experience of the logos of Christ, the message of Christ, the word of Christ dwelling among you. You give yourselves over to these gifts of learning, singing, and thanksgiving. So let's dive into this because some of you may be a little not sure about this anyway. I know that it's challenges for me because singing is not one of my gifts. I mean, back when I was a cage fighter and got into rap, I enjoyed that. But singing is no bueno for Artie Farb's lips. But nonetheless, what does it mean that I'm invited to participate in this gift of poetic music that God has given the human race? So let's take a look. So the first of all, the next one we're going to look at is number two, learning and growing. Verses, verse 16b simply says this, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now look at those two phrases. He uses two phrases, teaching and admonishing, teaching and admonishing. So what we could say is that this is simply saying you instruct one another, but you also warn one another. Now at the very beginning, we have to take a moment to bring some clarification because the way that the warning passages and the teach and the admonishing passages were modeled in some of the groups that I grew up in is that meant you call people out on their sin. And I actually was part of a church 
where if it was privy to private sin, they would call names during church so that we had the fear of God on us. And of course, you know, most teenage boys aren't known for their pure as the white driven snow mines. And I remember sitting in church petrified, looking down the whole time. I don't want to make eye contact because the Spirit's going to expose how wicked I am in front of everybody. It'll be embarrassing. I'm sure everyone will be shocked that I'm sinful. And so, so, so I understand the fear whenever groups start talking about this, like this real confront, confrontation. I don't think that we have to go there, my friends. I think that we can take a step back and say, well, what does it mean to warn one another? And it's, it's as simple as this. In fact, I think it's a mistake to make this about secret sin in our lives. Because when we focus on that, we don't think about the subtle sins that we accept and everyone else around us accepts as though they are harmless. Things like slander and gossip and judgment and walking in non-love. These are sins for which we need to be warned against because Jesus warns us against these things. However, churches don't really warn against those sins. In fact, you may even get extra points for being really well at those sins, particularly gossip and slander, as long as you've learned how to spiritualize it as prayer requests and so forth. So, so, so there, are, there are all kinds of things that we tolerate that are harmful to the community, but what we do is we concentrate on the extreme things and pinpoint those and want to focus on that. But what if this instructing and warning just simply means this? Look, there are two ways to live. You either live in Christ or antichrist. And if you choose to live in Christ, there are beautiful consequences that come about. There's also suffering. There's also costs. It's not just high five and cherry soda, but there are beautiful consequences that come to giving yourselves over to learning how to live in Christ and follow the way of Christ. At the same time, there are undesirable consequences when I choose to live my life antichrist, when I choose judgment, when I choose non-love, when I choose a lack of mercy. There are consequences that come in that are harmful to my soul and to the relationships that I'm in with the people that I care about all around me. And here's the thing, being a Christian and believing the right things about Jesus will not cancel the consequences of choosing to live antichrist. Those will still invite chaos in my life, even though I'm in church every Sunday, raising my hands and writing my check. So the truth is, we need one another to say there's a way and there's a not the way. That's what this instructing and warning each other is ultimately all about. The ultimate accountability question should simply be, how, how are you growing and how are you struggling in your goal of being faithful to Jesus? That's what we need to focus on. That's what we need accountability for. So we do instruct and we warn. Now look, that might include saying, brother, sister, what you, doing, what you are doing is wrong, but more importantly, but, but, but more importantly for you, is creating a massive hindrance in your pursuit of Christ and it's causing death to come to your soul and you could lose your partner and your children or, or, or whatever from it. And so let's warn away from it. I'm not saying that we don't ever have hard conversations. What I am saying is hard conversations happen in the context of relationship. If you're going to have a challenging conversation, you should know what makes that person cry. And you should know what that person is afraid of. 
and you should know what makes that person light up with joy. Then you have the intimacy to have a challenging conversation. But not just by right that we go to the same church do, I, do we do this. We do that, but, but here's the deal. The point isn't to modify and control behavior. The point is for that person or persons to be liberated to flourish in their pursuit of Jesus. That's why we warn, not for shame and guilt, but for liberty and so that we can be set free to flourish in our pursuit of being faithful to Jesus and cooperating with the Spirit as he seeks to conform us to the image of Christ. So leaning into continuous growth in my understanding of Christ and leaning into continuous growth in my understanding of how to live the life of Christ is the normal posture for any follower of Jesus. In other words, we actually don't ever coast in this calling. This, this is not just a religious conviction, my friends. If you've heard the voice of the Spirit, you have been called to a new way of life, the way of Jesus, the way of death and resurrection, the way of laying down your life and allowing God to raise it back up, the way of redemption to where everything, including your most shameful choices, are worked back in in God's program to bringing redemption to you and liberty to others. And so we are constantly on the move as the people of God. We're constantly leaning into growth. It's so frustrating for me that in order to create more faithfulness, the evangelical world thought the way to do it is just draw lines about around proper belief. And literally, there are organizations that exist to determine whether or not someone's a real Christian or not based on whether or not they follow the belief system of that particular organization. Now, again, I'm sure they're well-meaning. I'm sure that they're just trying to obey Colossians and learn how to instruct and warn one another. But my point is this. It is such a danger to make faithfulness to Christ line equal to whether or not all my beliefs are in a row. Because the truth is, hopefully, you believe differently at 45 than you did at 22. It's called maturity. It's called growth. We can't hold tightly on to our beliefs and act like, oh, I can never question or wrestle with these things. No, questioning and wrestling is how you grow. And so, and so, we should always be open to leaning in and growing and being stretched and learning. That is the posture of a disciple. A disciple, in fact, is a learner. So we lean into continuous growth. So what are the habits that allow this growth to flourish? Let's be as practical as we can. And I just mentioned a few here that I have found very helpful. And I'm not being so arrogant to say, since these work for me, it has to work for everyone. I'm just bearing witness to how the Spirit has used these principles in my own life. Number one is being willing to read and to listen. Now, I know that we're not all readers, and for what my sake, audible counts. So if you listen to a book, you, in my, it's okay for you to say to me, I read that book. And um, now, I used to not feel that way, but like any good self-righteous person, when, when, once I started enjoying audible, then I changed the rules uh, because that's what we do. And so, uh, so, so Audible works, podcasts work. If you would like a list of suggestions you want to set and talk about, I'll be happy to share those with you, things that have been helpful for me. But my point is, you've got to expose yourself to information. And you've got to expose yourself to perspectives that you don't currently possess. It, all that's going to happen is, you're going to become more confident in your conviction, or shockingly, you might find out that you were wrong. 
You, you might find out that you need to rethink some things and readjust some approaches to, to things. And that's okay as well. Either of those could happen, but they're not gonna happen if we just exist in echo chambers. If we get our information primarily from social media, we are making an enormous mistake because how many of us aggressively follow the people that we can't stand to hear them open their mouth? No, reject, unfriend, silence, hide, whatever. I don't wanna see that stuff. I don't wanna be exposed to politics I disagree with or lifestyle choices I disagree with. So my newsfeed is, 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 is literally has an algorithm set up to make me the happiest it possibly can. So it's just gonna reinforce my assumptions and my beliefs. It's a terrible place to get your information. You have to purposely, unless, unless you purposely follow people that you disagree with so, because you wanna be open to hearing other people's perspectives. But be careful with that because Facebook will tell you, and we did lose a family from the church one time because they didn't like who I followed on Facebook. So, so you might want to lock down your privacy settings before you do that. But my point is, you've got to be willing to stretch and to entertain and to wrestle with new ideas without becoming personal. This is why we are opposed to identity politics because once that happens, to talk about an idea is to be talking about a person that is an enormous mistake. We can love one another fiercely and disagree vehemently if we're following the Holy Spirit. And so we wanna expose ourselves to that information and then you wanna think about it. Don't just get agitated, ponder it a little bit. And if it causes questions, good. If you get nervous because you're like, well, I was told when I was seven, I could never question this. So now I'm scared, good. Press into that. And if somebody tells you, oh, well, that's just doubt. You just need to put that question uh, on the shelf. Go talk to someone else. I say, take that sucker down. Let's open it up. Let's get into the mess of it. You might not recognize who you are for six to nine months as you're processing that. But I promise you this, you'll come through on the other side a changed person. The model of the scripture is not to hide from our questions. Our model is Jacob grabbing the angel. And the angel saying, let me go, I have to leave. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he, he wrestles like he was part of the Gracie family. He's doing BJJ, BJJ moves on this, on, this, on this angel. They're wrestling all night. The angel has to go. So then what's the angel do? He just touches that hip, a permanent limp. But now Jacob is no longer Jacob. He arises from the wrestling as a limping, humble Israel. That's why we wrestle with our beliefs. That's why we wrestle with scripture, not to be right and condemn others, but so that they can do their mysterious work of bringing about the transformation that we need. So we think, we converse, Go talk to someone, talk to your partner, have a, a spiritual friend that you can take out for coffee and talk, converse, or join an irresistible group that are gonna be built around conversing with the revelations that we're learning and come for an hour and a half and have a group of people that you can converse with, talk with, talk about your wrestling with. But then the last two are critical for true Christian transformation. You've gotta be willing to repent, which means to change your mind which sometimes is much more difficult than changing your behavior. But behavioral change will follow a changed mind. But a changed mind won't always follow 
change behavior. That's why the root of it is in our mind. Repenting means to change your mind and be willing to align yourself to new information as it comes into your soul. That's what the process of repentance is, which is why Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance because we're constantly open to being humbled and change and adapt to respond to the ongoing pursuit of revelation that the Holy Spirit wants to share with us. And remember, he is trying to share with you wisdom from an infinite source and you are a finite mind, so it takes a little while. But there's more, my friends. There's always more to be discovered more to be celebrated, more revelation that can cause your heart and soul to sing louder than it has before. That's always out in front of us. And so we repent and we change and finally we act. Action is critical for spiritual growth. It's not enough to have the information in notebooks. It's not enough if you're an interesting podcast guest. You have to act upon the things that you know. And as we know, the action is where a little bit more difficult than the theory, but that's where the change happens. It's why we need one another. So reading and listening, thinking, conversing, repenting, and acting. Then finally, he says, singing. And he's kind of connects singing and thanksgiving, but we're going to separate them just momentarily. Look at this verse 16c, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, if you read commentaries on this verse, scholars will say, you know, in general, it's probably not necessary to make a really hard separation Paul is just saying that the life of discipleship is a melodic life, that we respond to the soul's language of music and poetry. But he does use separate words. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So one way that scholars would say, although you need to be gentle with this, kind of what is hinted at in the separation is perhaps the psalms is literally a reference to the role that the book of psalms has always played in the life of the church. Literally going back to the, like that's our book of worship. That's what worship looks like. Now, we don't use it for that because we've sanitized our worship and our worship tends to be just nice and the psalms aren't all that nice. The psalms invite the whole spectrum of human emotion to be processed in the presence of God, but that is what worship is. It's not just when I sing things that I enjoy, but it's whenever I'm I'm in existential crisis and, and and my gut hurts because of it and I'm willing to process my anger and disappointment and confusion in the presence of God. That is worship. So he says psalms and hymns. Hymns speak to, and hymns are already present in some of the early writings of 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 the New Testament. In fact, I try to, when I come across them, mention this piece of writing here seems like the author's taking a break from his line of thought and is actually quoting from a hymn that was already present in the early church because you have to remember, all religious groups utilize music for spiritual development, all kinds of religion, faith, traditions. But particularly in the, in the early church and in the history of Christianity, you have to remember it's 2022, and still more faithful followers of Jesus have lived with the, without the ability to read than there has been Christians who had the ability to read, if you take a survey throughout history. So one of the ways robust theology and spiritual formation happened was with the pinning of really conscientious hymns about Christ and the Christian faith. And this is how people were discipled because even if they couldn't read, they could sit among a group and sing out truth about God and learn and allow their hearts to grow in their understanding of God. Up till this day, this is how we utilize music. And then he says spiritual songs. 
And that probably has something to do with something that's a little bit more spontaneous. Uh, it probably has something to do with more of an immediate expression of the heart. You know, there, there, was, a, there was a moment uh, in worship just a few minutes ago. It's going to be one of the moments I journal, journal about this afternoon as I evaluate the weekend where the worship team kind of stopped. I think maybe there was some chords being played so we didn't get crazy off key. But in general, there wasn't voices from the stage. It was just voices out here. We were just singing and confessing together whether we feel it or not and whether we see it or not, that God is in fact a miracle working God. And I don't, if you didn't feel anything, that's fine. We just sang even when I don't feel that you're working. But for some of us, you might've felt a little moment there. It's like a little moment where the veil split open just for a second and we just brushed up against transcendence because it happened because our community was sharing a moment and we were singing truth to God, to one another, and to ourselves. And I, I long for those moments in our worship services uh, that allow us to have that little moment of intimacy. So it's probably talking about all of these things, but the point is simply this. Music and song and poetry, these are expressions of both the mind and the heart. And our faith is a faith that is cultivated by habits of the mind and habits of the heart. So you have... So I would suggest you avail yourself to God's gift of song. Even if, like me, you can't sing at all. Even if you have to wait till your family leaves and you muzzle the dogs so you can get your hand drum out and pray and chant if that's your thing. That's fine. I am not a musician. But if you look into the psychology of music, there are so many things that are going on. For one thing, our breath is becoming more stable and rhythmic and consistent because you have to do that when you are speaking out melody and, um, um, and, and, and organized expressions. Not only that, but our bodies are actually made to respond, respond to the calming effect that happens with the vibrations in our chest and in our minds. I mean, it's just amazing the way God has connected this habit of the church into literally affect all parts of who we are. It's God's gift to us. And so Paul highlights, it's the way that instruction happens. He's gonna go on to say, if, you, if we had time, we would go over to Ephesians 5. We don't have time. He's gonna have the audacity to say, it's actually how you get filled with the spirit is by learning to sing to one another in psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is not about genre or styles. That's not what I'm talking about here. You pick your genre. I would just suggest you go with that which stirs your heart. And yes, even your emotions. It's okay if you don't care for contemporary music. It's okay if you don't care for choral music. It's okay if you don't care for chant. It's okay if you don't care for worship hip hop. Just as long as you understand that there are souls that are moved by all these genres. And I'm just saying, figure out what moves your heart, what moves your soul, and allow that to become part of your practice because it's okay to not care for other genres, but it is not okay to neglect this gift of worship through song because it is an ordained means of God for growing and learning. Not the only means, but it is an important means of growing and learning. But it is connected to and cannot be divorced from thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Verse 16d finally says, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Here's what I've learned about my habit and practice of worship. 
Worship is laborious when gratitude is not the atmosphere of my heart. The only time it's really life-giving and it's meaningful to me is if it's an expression of gratitude. If I have cut myself off from gratitude and I'm just going through the motions, I will not find worship all that meaningful. Although there is value in being willing to be obedient even when you don't feel like it. But ultimately, the fuel of worship comes from a heart of gratitude. Worship is laborious when gratitude is not the atmosphere of my heart, but fortunately, worship is both a delight and a very natural way of expressing thanksgiving if gratitude is the atmosphere of my heart. And if you'll think about it, if you want to read, um, I think it's C.S. Lewis' book on the Psalms, he has some really wonderful insights about worship. But ultimately, what he says is this, worship is really the most natural thing about us. Is it not what we ought, don't we automatically celebrate and extol the things that bring our heart joy? Whether that's being in love for the first time and you're obnoxious because you want to talk about it to everyone who knows you and they get weary of it, whether it's your passion for bass fishing or if it making quilts, I mean, like something that lights us up, the natural thing is just to talk about it in a praiseworthy manner. We, all, we do this about a multiplicity of things. All this is is applying this to our relationship with God. It is that recognizing worship is easy when my heart sees the mercy of God and responds to it. And, and not that worship is only singing, but at the same time, it is not less than singing. What I've learned on my own personal journey is an inability to engage in worship could be indicative that I have subtly moved from gratitude to entitlement in my posture toward God's grace. And entitlement makes my heart grow cold. Entitlement feeds my ego. Entitlement feeds my pride. Entitlement feeds my temptation to judge those who I deem less worthy to that to which I'm entitled. My friends, it is not a sin we talk about a lot, but it is dangerous nonetheless. And when my heart moves from gratitude to entitlement toward God's grace, that is when worship then becomes a challenge because worship requires the humility of my vulnerability and my neediness. And so, and so that, I'm not saying that's true every time. I'm saying it's a worthwhile question to ask before the presence of God because it has often created a stumbling block for me. Thanksgiving through worship is the most natural expression of gratitude. And that's why gratitude and the worthiness of God are the fuel for worship and obedience. Now, I can't make myself grateful, but here's what's beautiful about this gift of gratitude. Although I can't make myself feel great gratitude, I can still practice gratitude. And what's amazing is this. I rarely think myself into better actions, but I can act myself into better feelings. 100% of the time. And so even though the emotion might not be there, if I learn to practice gratitude, and it can be as simple as just looking up and saying, thank you. Just my first encounter with the divine today happened before 6 a.m. And my iPhone and my dog are all that were present. As I set out in the backyard, and as I'm prone to do, particularly on Sunday mornings, Siri, please play. Yes, sometimes I say please to Siri. I'm that pathetic. And, um, but I have also insulted her before. It, whatever. Um, 
play uh, Draw Me Close by Shane and Shane. It's just one of my favorite go-tos. It's about a six-minute song. And I didn't sing a word of it because I was afraid it would ruin the moment for myself. I just let the song play and wash over my soul. And I just sat there with my stupid four-legged brown shadow watching the sun creep up even though it was overcast, just listening, let it wash over and just started my day with saying, thank you, thank you. And it shifted the atmosphere of my heart. It equips me then to face the challenges that life is gonna quickly bring to me, which it did even today, with an ability to carry burdens without being overburdened myself because of the spirit cultivating that taste of gratitude. We can't create it, but we can practice it. Therefore, practicing thanksgiving is vital to healthy spirituality. Think about this. I'm not assuming this is true of everyone, although I'm looking around the room and I know who you are. Just kidding. Remember, I've got 150 sets of eyes staring back at me. But if you've ever been in crisis because the temptations of your flesh or mind or pride or ego overtook you, gotten you off the path a little bit, think about those moments. They're pretty easily accessible to me. Hopefully for some of you, you take a few minutes to get there. How many of those disastrous seasons were characterized by a heart of gratitude? For me, 100% of the time, there was zero gratitude. And in fact, that apathy often led to me justifying some of the decisions that I made in those seasons. How many of you have ever been delivered from the consequences of one of those bad choice seasons? You remember what your heart felt like when you first realized that there was gonna be forgiveness, that there was gonna be restitution, that there was gonna be reconciliation? Do you remember what you felt like in that moment, that spontaneous, you didn't say, phew, I got away with it. You didn't say that. You said, thank God you've had mercy. I've been delivered and restored. And that impulse in your heart was gratitude. It was thankfulness. This is a safety net to keep our eyes focused on the grace of God in Christ. Gratitude is the inner disposition and thanksgiving is the action that reveals it. However, in God's grace, we can cultivate the fruit of gratitude if we choose to practice thanksgiving. So elements for a lifestyle of worship. The word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. Would you all stand as we get ready to close? And what I would like to invite you to do in this moment is we create some space for reflection as the worship team leads us. We're gonna sing, we're gonna worship. As you know, the communion um, elements are at various places around the building that you can utilize. One two things. We'll do them really quickly. First of all, close your eyes. Let's practice for just a minute. Close your eyes and just allow your mind to go to whatever is in your life right now that brings you joy. It could be your partner, it could be your kids. It could be something that you're learning. It could be your job. It could be your 
dog and possibly a cat, even for some of you. But whatever it is, just let it seep up to the surface. It's the most recent thing that you really took enjoyment in. For me, so in this moment, what I'm thinking of is that a moment of blessing and levity happened to one of my children this week. That's the first thing that brought up as my joy moment. Hold that in your mind and take a deep breath and just say, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the presence of your goodness in my life, in my community, in the life of my children and my wife. Thank you. And that's it. That is the simple first step to practicing a lifestyle of thanksgiving and gratitude. Let it be the presenting atmosphere of your heart. And what I want to ask you to do is as we close, is simply ask the Holy Spirit to show you one of these elements. The message of Christ, learning, singing, thanksgiving, that he is inviting you to press into. Listen for his direction. And then read, talk, Google, whatever you need to do about practicing that. And then do it and talk about it with somebody else so that we can enter into your joy.